And welcome to the RAW podcast at Manchester Metropolitan University. This series will explore the Anthony Burgess cassette archive. Anthony Burgess was born in Manchester in 1917. He published more than 50 books, including A Clockwork Orange and Earthly Powers, and he composed around 250 musical works. His wife Liana carried a cassette recorder at all times to capture her life with the author and their son. The archive now contains these intimate recordings and has been remixed by 23 artists in a new project which provides unique insight into Burgess. Find out more about the project at subrosa.net. Stick around for the whole episode series to find out more about Anthony Burgess from Andrew Biswell, director of the Foundation, the most unusual things in the archive from Anna Edwards, the Foundation's archivist, how the project came about from Alan Dunn, artist and producer, and how Scanner, aka Robin Rimbaud, worked with the archival material. We'll also get to hear some of the archive recordings and adaptations too. So stay tuned. In this episode, Matt Foley interviews Professor Andrew Biswell about Burgess and the Foundation. I'm Andrew Biswell. I'm Professor of Modern Literature at Manchester Met and Director of the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. So let's get into our first episode. Over to you, Matt. So I'm really pleased to be joined now by Andrew Biswell. Um, Andrew, tell us about how the International Anthony Burgess Foundation came to be founded. The Foundation's a charity. It was set up by Liana Burgess, who was Anthony's widow, towards the end of her life in 2003. She decided that she wanted to establish a charity uh, which would benefit students of music and literature, but also the general public as well. So it's partly an archive and a reading room, but it's also a public building that's open to everybody. Excellent. And how would you sum up the mission of the Foundation in broad terms? It's about celebrating the past. It it thinks a lot about Burgess and his contemporaries and that particular period of late 20th century culture between the 50s and the 1990s when he died, but also trying to make the link with the contemporary as well. So we do a lot of work with contemporary composers and musicians and writers and also kind of uh, encouraging, I suppose, the kind of work that you might think was in the spirit of what Burgess did, but also talking about the subjects that were of interest to him. For example, dystopia, science fiction, historical fiction, Shakespeare, Hemingway. He's obviously a, a fascinating figure. How would you characterize him as a figure? Burgess as a cultural figure, as a writer, You have to remember he's also a musician and a composer, and that's where he comes from. Both of his parents, they were theatre people. His mum was a singer and dancer in the music halls in Glasgow and in Manchester, and his father played piano in pubs and silent cinemas. So that's in his blood to begin with. And he grew up in North Manchester. So apart from the novels, and there are quite a lot of those, 33 novels, 25 non-fiction books, there's also this other dimension to his creativity, which is musical. So, for example, he decides he's going to write a stage musical based on James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, which he did. There's another musical about the life of Leon Trotsky. And there's a film he wrote for Hollywood with music about the life of Shakespeare. And I think those activities of, of being a writer and being a musician are prominent and important in all of his works. Uh, and he did a lot of composing. I mean, there are more than 
250 compositions. And then beyond that, he's working as a cultural critic and he's making films and television and going on the radio. And I got very interested in this idea of the writer as performer, as public figure, who, who exists in all kinds of ways beyond the page. He, he's a sort of big cultural presence and is involved in that kind of dialogue with readers and spectators and consumers at all levels, really. And the theme of conversations comes up quite a lot in Burgess's work. Can, can you see at work in his writing a, a conversation with music or with musical modes? And he, he was also a linguist, and I wondered how that infused his, his writing. I think all these things are connected, actually. The idea of the musician as writer and the, the writer as somebody who's going to make new languages and I think not just with Burgess, but with other uh, 20th century writers as well. The the idea that various art forms are linked with Burgess. He he really wanted to be a composer and he failed. And he got into writing as a second best almost. And then later on, towards the end of his life, he found opportunities for getting his symphonies performed and his music. Some of it was was played in public and, and performed on radio and so forth. Uh, what part of the fascination for me is the, is the way in which all of these art forms kind of fuse together. And the novel is the place where I suppose he decides you can do that. So within his novels, there's normally a composer character. And that's one way to kind of mobilise a conversation about music is, is through fictional dialogues and so forth. And you, you can see those musical influences and the influences of Joyce and of linguistics at, at work in A Clockwork Orange, which is obviously Burgess's most famous novel. I mean, how, how did he feel about being particularly famous for a particular book? With The Clockwork Orange, um, he would compare himself maybe quite grandiosely to Shakespeare. And he'd say, imagine if you were Shakespeare, you'd written uh, The Winter's Tale and you were very excited about A Winter's Tale and the only thing anyone would talk about was Hamlet. And I, I suppose the point he's making is that he felt that um, this very short novel that he'd written quite early in his career and had thought of it as just a very minor work, and such was its prominence that it threatened to eclipse everything else. He had mixed views about the novel, and when he published a new book, interviewers, journalists would be told, you can't mention The Clockwork Orange, don't bring it up, and they'd promise not to mention it, and then he would bring it up, and he'd start talking about how much he hated the film. So it's something he couldn't leave alone. He, he was aware of it, and he knew that Part of his success depended on it, and he came to, you know, resent it to some extent. Uh, it's also true, actually, that he was quite famous before the film came out. So he was already quite a mainstream figure and, and known for his writing before this film came along, and it did have a kind of distorting effect on his career, and he had very mixed feelings about that. We do actually have a clip of Burgess from 1972 giving an acceptance speech for A Clockwork Orange in New York, in which he talks about his feelings about Stanley Kubrick's film. Let's play that now. As far as Kubrick's concerned, I knew little about him. Uh, I was told over the telephone <laughs> that uh, Stanley Kubrick wished to make my book A Clockwork Orange into a film and I would get no money from it. Well, I said, no, I know this already. You didn't tell me. <laughs> but he said, um, would you rather he made it and get no money or somebody else make it? Well, I had a, a, a vision of Ken Russell making it. <laughs> uh, 
No, I said I was prepared to pay Krubik to make the film. <laughs> It turned out to my surprise that Kubrick did not actually need the money at the time. Uh, Kubrick uh, reappeared in my life, or very nearly. Uh, he hadn't really appeared at all, had he? He, appeared, he reappeared by name very nearly when I was uh, in Australia and uh, I was summoned to London to see Kubrick because of two lines in the book. He wasn't sure whether he was a copyright or not, or whether they were quotations from an existing song, whether I'd actually written them. So I rushed from Australia to New Zealand, <laughs> to Hawaii, San Francisco, New York, and eventually landed up in London and uh, appeared for lunch at that old English tavern called Trader Vic's. <laughs> After a couple of old English noggins of Mai Tai, uh, Kubrick did not turn up. Then Kubrick, to use the Australian vernacular, nearly gave birth to a set of diesel engines when he, uh, when he discovered that the British edition of the book was different from the American edition. Indeed, the American edition, if anybody's interested, has 20 chapters, whereas the British edition has 21. Uh, there's a cartoon in uh, the British Daily Express which shows a man and a woman leaving the cinema, having seen Kubrick's film, saying, George, dear, I do hope they don't make son of Clockwork Orange. <laughs> well, this is no joke, because uh, chapter 21 in the British edition is precisely that. It's uh, the account of the son of Clockwork Orange, and anybody who wishes to make this movie as a follow-up is welcome to see me afterwards. <laughs> Well, but, uh, as you know, uh, he doesn't travel. God, I mean, Kubrick doesn't travel. <laughs> and uh, he is stuck there in Boreham Wood, about two miles from Pinewood Studios outside London. And if I may use again a dramatic allusion, uh, there's no question of Boreham Wood coming to dance in aim, dances here. So all I can say now is that uh, I know your little droogie, your little malinky droogie back there in Boreham Wood, will smack down to his very kishkas or even his yardles and I'll place this horror show padarok into his rukas. And, of course, you, you um, discovered a, a sequel or an un unfinished sequel to The Clockwork Orange amongst the archival material, is that right? There is a manuscript which is a response to A Clockwork Orange, a non-fiction. Uh, he describes it as a sort of philosophical intervention. And it's clear that he wanted to do an illustrated book. And it's a kind of series of thoughts and provocations and so forth. So I think at some point that book will come out. But at the moment, it exists as, as a sort of potential book. It's a manuscript. It's a set of notes towards the book that he didn't complete. And there's obviously still discoveries to be found amidst the, the archives and collections at the foundation. Can you, can you say a little bit about the breadth of the collections that you have? To give an example, the audio collection, that's more than a thousand hours of cassettes and reel-to-reel -reel tapes. And at the moment, some of the material is digitised, but not all of it. So, I mean, that's, that's a big area of mystery. You know, it's a future project to, to put all that in order. There's a lot we still don't know that's there, you know, kind of potentially within the archive and which will come out over the next few years, I'm sure. 
And some of the cassettes were, of course, the, the inspiration for the conversations with the Anthony Burgess Archives project and, and album that uh, was launched recently. What what did the tapes reveal to you about Burgess's character? Were there some surprises in there? The big surprise is that the cassettes show somebody who's at home and is not performing or showing off. There was a particular kind of persona that I think Burgess affected when he was on TV. And a lot of the interviews, if you watch them, they're just the same. He says that it tells the same stories in the same order. And he had this very kind of public facade, uh, which was quite difficult to get through. Only one or two people ever really succeeded in puncturing that sort of carapace that he, he put up. And one of them was um, Anthony Clare. This was the In the Psychiatrist Chair series on Radio 4. And Claire got a long way in getting Burgess to talk about his his early life and the the, the death of his parents and, and how he was very sort of isolated as a child and also his his various marriages and, and you know sort of how those worked out and that there's a kind of um, emotional engagement in some of those interviews that you don't often see in the public performances now the audio cassette collection shows you a lot more of that often he's at home with his wife and his son and they're just having a conversation or they're making music together or when his son was away at college he would record christmas mixtapes for his son and that's another side that nobody really suspected was there until we started to listen to these audio tapes and for example there's there's one a bird song they'd left the tape recorder just by a window and you can hear the birds outside so there's a lot of um, very varied material that the artists were able to draw on. And you, you all got together for the launch event um, for, the, for the album, which was, was held at the, the foundation. What was it like seeing some of the live performances, for example? Did it bring the, the music and the interpretations to life in a different, different way? It was a really good occasion, actually. And the foundation does about 200 public events per year. It's a very good space for music because we've got at the foundation Burgess's pianos, including the Bosendorfer piano, which is a very good instrument. It's like the Ferrari of pianos. It's an instrument that he owned towards the end of his life. And so, I mean, part of the fun is that where there have been performances of Burgess's music to, to hear it played on his own instruments. And I'd not seen Scanner perform before. And I, I thought that was, you know, quite a spectacle in itself. But also he was, when he was a teenager, he'd bought um, a copy of Burgess's novel, Earthly Powers, and has carried it with him ever since. And we didn't know at the point where he was working on this that he is the biggest Burgess fan, you know, on the planet. There is a very strong online presence for the foundation as well, which includes online exhibitions too. You've got online exhibitions, very much so. Also a series of podcasts and very strong content going up on all the channels on SoundCloud and on uh, Twitter, Facebook, etc. All the, uh, the details are on the website, anthonyburgess.org, if anyone wants to go and have a look. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, we look forward to seeing all the developments that happen with the Foundation in the future. Thank you very much, Andrew, for your time. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. In our next episode, Matt will speak to Anna Edwards about the archive and some of the stranger things in the collection. All of our previous episodes are available on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Tune back in soon for more episodes.
This episode of the Raw Podcast was presented by Matt Foley, presented, produced and edited by Lucy Simpson and mixed by Julian Holloway.